Welcome to Cato Audio for April 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Scott Linsicum discusses global supply chains in the Biden era. Michael Tanner discusses alleviating poverty in California. And Brian Hooks and Charles Koch join Cato President Peter Gettler for a conversation on what it means to believe in people. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As we record this, it is just past a year since lockdowns began throughout the United States and all due to a little virus that rapidly spread across the planet. Governments reacted with varying success to try to prevent the spread of the disease and then deal with the economic fallout of the disease and make sure that basic goods continued to flow. So to talk about government responses and individual responses and dealing with this virus and really what it has to teach us about economics, I'm talking to Ryan Bourne. He is the author of the new Cato book, Economics in One Virus, An Introduction to Economic Reasoning Through COVID-19. Ryan, it wasn't that long after the United States began taking this seriously. I think that was probably mid to late February that government started to respond. And what would you say is the first big error that governments made either in this country or around the globe in responding to this virus? Well, I think it's almost kind of become a cliche to say among libertarians now, but I still agree with journalists like Ed Young at The Atlantic who've said that the testing debacle early on was kind of the original scene of the pandemic response. Um, The pandemic in many ways is what economist Joshua Gans has kind of described as an information problem. Um, Some people have a virus. um, We don't know who has the virus. We don't know who's at risk of getting the virus from interacting with those people. So the country had quite a narrow window of opportunity to try and um, identify who had the virus, to stamp out clusters of cases, identify where the virus was spreading, and then implement quite kind of targeted measures to stem the flow of the disease and allow people to maintain as much uh, normality uh, as possible. The problem was the the government, the FDA um, in particular, introduced an emergency use authorization process which slowed down the process of diagnostic test approval. It banned um, university labs from undertaking their own tests. The CDC bungled its test, um, produced a, a faulty test. Um, And as a result of that, we didn't know who had the virus, and um, that delay over a couple of months led to a massive spread through the population. Now, it's really important to understand, I think where this links into my book, it's important to understand the economic mistake being made here, because um, public officials were obviously worried about dodgy tests and the fact that if we had tests that were giving misleading results, it might misinform us about the state of the pandemic. But we have to think of this like economists and think about costs and benefits. Yes, if we'd have had bad tests, they would have misinformed us, and that's a downside. But the alternative at the time was not bad tests, but having no tests. Um, So the costs of precluding private testing in terms of identifying cases was extremely high. The benefits of those regulations that were delaying the tests were pretty much non-existent. What's worse than a slightly inaccurate test is no test. And as a result of that, We had a lot of false negatives out there, people who actually were infected with the virus without knowing it. Um, And as a result, we all had to live our lives as if 
um, we were positive. So there were lots of false positives out there. And that massively increased the cost of the pandemic because it basically ruled out from the get-go the opportunity to do something like South Korea had done, which has proved kind of the most sustainable approach over the long term. So if we'd have had those tests early on, we'd have had far greater epidemiological knowledge. We have had to impose less stringent restrictions on people's lives. We could have had more uh, open kind of economic activity through that period. And I think we'd have seen fewer overall deaths. So that to me is the biggest mistake that we've made in this whole thing. You say that, and my first thought is, but we would end up trusting the same government to make adequate use of this new knowledge. And uh, that that poses a problem as well, given the responses that we actually saw. Well, um, John Cochran had a great quote about this on another podcast recently, where he was talking about test, trace, and isolate. And he said, the problem in a lot of economic policy debates is we don't include subjects in our sentences. Um, so who is undertaking the testing? Uh, who is being tested, who's doing the tracing, and who's ensuring that people are isolating. And you're right. Um, this wouldn't have been perfect. We wouldn't have completely stamped out the virus and got to COVID zero. Um, we would have been reliant on the fact that um, individuals would have had to act on their test results. But we have to compare you know, the real world that we live in in reality with um, a realistic alternative. And I think if we'd have had widely available tests, um, with people undertaking them. Yes, we would have been reliant on people then self-isolating. But um, it seems pretty clear to me that on the margins, more people would have been self-isolating uh, than we actually saw, uh, having been infected with the disease. And indeed, if we'd have had um, widespread availability of rapid at-home tests where people could uh, undertake this uh, more, on a more regular basis, then I think that would have been um, better still. So, you know, you're right, it wouldn't have been perfect. And uh, I think it would have been a mistake to rely on centralized authority to impose that kind of test, trace and, and isolate um, for the reasons that you state. Um, but we've got to compare the, the world that we live in with a, a realistic alternative. Um, and I think that would have been a big marginal improvement. So, uh, you know, the, the first chapter here, uh, in your book, what does it mean to be economically worse off during a pandemic? Obviously, we saw in March massive uh, unprecedented increases in uh, unemployment in, in the United States. Um, one, it's 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 hard to make sense of that because it's it is so unprecedented. But for those who were left without a job at some point in March or April, uh, how many of those people really were worse off? I have to assume the vast majority. Well, when we're talking about uh, whether you're economically worse off, we kind of can divide things into two. We can talk about whether people were financially worse off, uh, and clearly uh, lots of people um, were as a result of the, the pandemic and its impacts. Um, you saw the big downturns in demand for particular goods and services, uh, particularly you know, goods and services that require physical interaction. Um, a lot of people did lose their jobs at that time. Unemployment, the official rate at least, shot up to 14.8%. Um, but when economists think about being better or worse off, we're really talking about a broader conception of economic welfare, which incorporates not just people's financial status, but also uh, their ability to fulfill their preferences to to live the way that they want to live, 
Um, and and that type that type of economic welfare um, is context dependent. So what we might want to do in an ordinary situation in terms of going to the cinema or going to visit family might be very, very different in the middle of a pandemic. So the point I'm trying to make in the first chapter of the book is really to say, when we just look at GDP or uh, what happened to unemployment in those early days when the pandemic hit, um, that doesn't incorporate lots of the other ways that we were made worse off as a result of COVID-19 through all the imposed restrictions on our liberties, um, but also the constraints that we put on ourselves in terms of our behavior, not being able to engage in activities that we would ordinarily uh, prefer to. Now, the reason that that context-specific aspect is so important, though, is that clearly it would have made lots of us worse off if we'd have just behaved as normal uh, when the circumstances that faced us were, were very different, even before um, you know, formal lockdowns were imposed by state governors, people were voluntarily changing lots of their behavior. And that's because when the environment around us changes, um, the optimal decisions that we want to make uh, change. So the important point that I'm making there is that um, when we talk about how people were made uh, worse off as a result of the pandemic, we have to include um, the, the value of those lost liberties, which so often not even talked about when we're uh, discussing the effects of the pandemic. But we also have to think about how people's uh, preferences and actions would voluntarily change um, given the new world that people faced at that time. When you talk about being worse off because a restaurant that I used to go to is closed, either through a government mandate or just uh, they've decided to close because nobody's coming in there. Uh, that's a that's a loss. That's an economic loss. But again, uh, hard to quantify. Yeah, it's extraordinarily difficult to quantify. Um, but clearly, that is a loss to your to your life and to your well being. Not being able to engage in activities that you'd want to engage in. Um, now, the pandemic is a, a thornier economic problem because um, it's not just uh, about individuals' actions and individuals optimizing. Uh, their own behavior based on the conditions around them, because uh, there are big externalities. There, If I engage in going to dinner at your house, that might be something that we're both willing to do, given our risk tolerance in the middle of a pandemic and because we value each other's company so highly. Um, but there are potential for our behavior to risk the increase of the spread of the virus to other people, either uh, from me traveling from my house to your house or um, going back and engaging with my own family, people who aren't party to the actual uh, initial interaction, and um, uh, kind of third parties that are being affected by our behavior. And when you think of all the individual interactions that take place on a daily basis, um, and, and how that leads to the spread of the virus, it was perhaps almost inevitable that uh, in restrictions that would be imposed on some of our behaviors would have to be imposed on quite a broad basis to try to keep the reproduction rate of the virus uh, below one and stop the kind of uh, an exponential spread um, to the phase where um, there was really quite a lot of death and illness in the population. So yes, you're, you're right. There are lots of restrictions out there, whether they're uh, mandated or whether they're um, voluntary changes to decisions that made us 
worse off as individuals. The reason that the pandemic was such a difficult problem, though, was that even in situations where perhaps we acted on our own self-interest, there was the risk that that behavior would then lead to a greater spread of the virus that would affect third parties. All right. And that's chapter two of your book, uh, Introducing Externalities Through uh, COVID-19. And, uh, you know, we're used to thinking of externalities. I like to think of positive externalities first. Uh, the smell of fresh baked bread uh, is is one that uh, of a store that you may not be shopping at, but the uh, the downside externality, negative externalities, uh, it's enti- it's entirely possible for uh, people to not just refuse to behave in a way consistent that refuse to behave in a way that would effectively internalize that externality, but in this case, you would have, in many cases, no idea that you were imposing costs on other people. Yeah, and that's why this was so difficult. I mean, there's still a debate as to the kind of degree to which um, asymptomatic spread is um, a, a key driver of this. It does seem like it's quite a big proportion of the overall spread of the um, disease, and certainly pre-symptomatic spread, so being able to spread the virus before you exhibit symptoms, uh, makes this a much more difficult externality problem um, than perhaps many others that we might have to deal with. Now, you know, we know as economists and and kind of libertarian-minded economists that not every externality requires a government response. Um, We see uh, private market mechanisms deal with effects on third parties all the time. There's a famous example of a a kind of skyscraper that was being proposed in uh, New York and a bunch of residents nearby decided that that was going to uh, affect them adversely by spoiling their view. They banded together. They paid the developer not to develop. Um, Ronald Coase did a lot of work uh, explaining how in situations where transactions costs were low and people were able to gather together to negotiate, people come to voluntary um, private sector agreements to deal with externalities in this, in this way. The difficulty with um, COVID-19 and its spread is that once the, the virus is out there in the community and we don't know who's got it as a result of not having the the testing, there's kind of a pervasive general externality problem where nobody knows who has the virus and so many people have the virus that um, trying to internalize that cost of spreading it is incredibly difficult. Um, so then you have to try and kind of reframe this in a different way and think, as a society, how can we minimize the overall costs, the economic costs, the health costs, the liberty costs of this pandemic? How can we minimize the combined uh, costs of those things um, through a combination of our voluntary action and policy? And that's incredibly difficult uh, to think about, not just because the externality is, is often hard to um, identify for the the reasons that I've said, but also because once people have had the virus and have recovered from it, uh, their immunity um, provides a bit of a positive externality, uh, which is the whole reason why why we're currently going through our vaccination program. You know, a lot of people thought about that externality problem and and then said, okay, most of the social costs of this virus, the external costs that come from our all um, interacting together, um, come about as a result of the virus spreading to older people and vulnerable people. 
And, and that's undoubtedly true. So then people said, okay, well, what we should therefore do is try to have focus protection where older people and vulnerable people are kind of um, insulated from the behavior of everybody else, um, which is the kind of idea be behind the, the Great Barrington Declaration. And that kind of makes sense in theory. Um, but in reality, as we've seen with, with kind of nursing homes, as we've seen with people living in multi-generational housing, um, people working in certain occupations where they interact with lots of people, um, the kind of dense networks that we have in, in society generally, it, it's actually really, really difficult in practice to, uh, to have focused protection for what combined is quite a large proportion of the population. So again, I think it was perhaps almost inevitable as a result of that and as a result of this pervasive externality problem that we would have uh, some restrictions on uh, broad numbers of the population. Now, what those restrictions should be and what's the way of minimizing the costs of this pandemic, I think is a much more open question and then one that I kind of later explore in the book. Uh, you make mention of moral hazard here, and you talk about how to uh, understand moral hazard in the context of uh, this pandemic. The example you use uh, is someone who's wearing a mask, but is nonetheless getting too close to you. Um, it might be appropriate also to think about that in terms of uh, what they call the compensating behavior or the Peltzman effect. That is, I am engaging in this uh, risky activity. So I take precautions to protect me from this risky activity. And uh, then in response to the precaution I've taken, I engage in slightly riskier activity. Yeah. So I think kind of risk compensation, the Peltzman effect that we're talking about, I think is an underexplored um, topic in this pandemic. Well, one of the debates that we had early on is whether widespread mask wearing was appropriate. And there's a whole other kind of chapter where I, I take to task some of the public health officials who um, early on, despite people voluntarily wearing uh, masks as a kind of low cost precautionary measure for them personally, were advised by those public health officials that they shouldn't be wearing masks. And um, one of the reasons that the public health officials said that is because they didn't really believe that this was spreading um, through asymptomatic uh, individuals. And so they thought people with symptoms would be at home anyway, and these masks were kind of useless in the community. That doesn't explain, though, why they, they actively went out of their way to tell people not to wear them. It might explain why they didn't advocate for them. Um, the reason that they, they advised people not to wear them is because they were plain armchair economists, and they believed that saying to people that they should wear those masks would lead to um, a surge in demand, which it undoubtedly would have, but that would have kind of used up masks uh, from being available for healthcare workers and, and uh, nursing home workers. Um, and that to me shows a very kind of static view of the world uh, and doesn't think about how quickly we'd see a supply response, which of course we did once um, uh, masks were being um, advised to be worn by those same public health officials when they had to ab about turn a few months later. Now, how does this relate to to, to kind of the Peltzman effect. Well, one of the concerns that some public health officials had about people wearing masks was that as a result of the um, perceived dissipated risk that comes from mask wearing, 
people wouldn't socially distance as much and would engage in other riskier behaviors like spending more time indoors in badly ventilated um, areas. Now, in part, the whole point of wearing the mask was to allow more activity to take place. So some would argue that that's a feature and not a bug. Um, but I do think that a kind of underexplored question here is the extent to which the focus that we've seen on mask wearing and the amount of discussion of it has actually led to an underappreciation of the importance of being in well-ventilated spaces. Um, and there's certainly a lot of my family members and friends that I've spoken to who've had COVID-19 who told me that they had no idea how they caught it because they were socially distancing and wearing masks. And then when you talk to them in detail, you realize that they were spending time indoors in people's houses, wearing a mask and standing more than two meters away, but for relatively long periods of time. And so I think this focus on masks and the idea that this would significantly reduce people's risks may have had a risk compensation effect where people have been more willing to kind of engage in indoor activity uh, that offsets any kind of risk reduction benefit that the mask might have. One of the early bits of data that came out that I think was attempting to separate out a little bit the uh, costs and benefits of government-issued mandates to lock down and the costs and benefits of private people making a decision uh, just not to engage socially uh, with other people. And that was data from opentable.com. Uh, the the place that manages uh, reservations for so many restaurants throughout the country. And you see before lockdowns, a pretty precipitous decline in reservations. So when we try to understand uh, the public actions here and the private action uh, in response to the virus, how do we begin to get a sense of that? Well, it's a really difficult question. And I've seen um, a lot of people try to undertake cost-benefit analysis of, of lockdowns, which I define in the book as, as um, the kind of broad stay-at-home, non-essential business closure, school closure measures that we, we saw in particular last spring. Now, unwinding um, how much, say, the GDP loss was as a result of the voluntary changes to behavior that we saw as opposed to the government lockdowns is incredibly difficult. Um, yeah, realistically, you could try and compare across states, some that locked down and some didn't, but then there's kind of interconnections between economic activity in, in different states. So that's a very imperfect way of looking at it. Um, and uh, I, I read a, a very interesting Wall Street Journal piece the other day that kind of suggested the fact that no state government or, or national government worldwide had undertaken a comprehensive cost-benefit analysis of, of lockdown uh, perhaps showed that they didn't really believe that they would pass a, a cost-benefit test. Now, I, I have a kind of more generous interpretation. I just think it's incredibly difficult to um, unwind these factors um, for a number of reasons. Um, but the main reason I think it's difficult is because if you look across states and across time, it does appear to be the case that... Um, when there's a very, very high prevalence of the disease, uh, people's behavior changes more dramatically. People stay home more often. People go to restaurants less, even if it's outdoors. Uh, people do a whole range of 
uh, engage in a whole range of behaviors that reduce their risks of, of catching or spreading the virus. Um, but the point at which they do that doesn't appear to be consistent in countries over time or between countries. So attempting to kind of model what would happen uh, without lockdown and compare it to what actually happened with lockdown um, is incredibly difficult to do. Um, and, you know, even if you could do that, you have to think about the duration of the time that you're assessing too, because it may well be, for example, that last year, many of the, the deaths averted as a result of the initial lockdown, uh, at least some of them would have been deaths delayed until the reopening occurred and the virus um, spread again. So trying to unpick this difference between private and, and public action is really tough. And my, my kind of broad conclusion is I don't think that we really get to the bottom of that question, exactly how cost effective, if at all, uh, those initial lockdowns were until we have very, very careful kind of retrospective econometric analysis that I just don't think is there yet. And even then, uh, the fact that these two things are so strongly related it's not even clear to me, really, that the lockdowns were not inspired by a decline in economic activity that was already well underway. Yeah, I think that certainly uh, could be the case. I mean, th th those initial months, my hunch is that those initial lockdowns were both overrated in their costs and benefits by critics and advocates alike, because there had been such a drastic uh, change in voluntary behavior. Since then, I do think there's been uh, trade-offs in, in certain parts of the country. Certainly, it seems that um, in most places, at least, those that didn't lock down as heavily didn't see as big a, a downturn in in terms of unemployment. But again, you know, it depends on the time frame that you're looking at. Um, if we kind of strip away those um, those earlier months and say, okay, we'll give those states a free pass because they didn't deal with it, but there was a huge range of uncertainty and nobody knew how much it had seeped into the community then. Then actually, a lot of the states that 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 never locked down look relatively bad. But, you know, if you take the pandemic as a whole, um, there's often not dramatic differences in outcomes between uh, certain lockdown and non-lockdown states. So you can, cut and, you can cut and move around the data to kind of suit your narrative. Uh, we also have to be careful, of course, not to talk about um, lockdowns as if there's a kind of blanket conclusion that applies uh, for all countries and all times. Um, certainly, you know, where I'm from in the UK, um, behavior and uh, and the ebbs and flows of the virus seem to be extremely sensitive with whether the country is in lockdown or not. There appears to be, you know, quite high compliance with lockdown measures. And uh, at the moment, um, when we're recording this in, in mid-March, there seems to be an upturn in the prevalence of the virus in much of Europe. Uh, and the UK, which is still in lockdown, has, has kind of seen a bit of a suppression for the time being. Now, in certain states in the US um, that haven't locked down um, for, for, for anywhere near as long or, or tried to suppress the virus, we still see the ebb and flows. We see those waves occur as people change their behavior. Um, but there doesn't appear to be as, as much of a direct connection with, with, um, with public action. So... I think when we're assessing this in time, we'll have to look at the individual cases and the individual time periods. What I try to do in the book, though, in that chapter, is really set out what you'd need to measure and bear in, and bear in mind if you were to undertake a cost-benefit um, analysis of lockdowns well. 
Um, that includes defining the counterfactual, what I've just uh, kind of discussed in terms of setting out clearly what you'd have expected to happen absent the lockdown given voluntary behavior. It also means linking back to what we were talking about in the off, thinking about the value to people of those lost, liber- those lost liberties to be able to engage in activities that might not appear in, in GDP. It's a really difficult question, but I think good economics can inform us in terms of the things that we should consider if we're thinking about a cost-benefit analysis in a comprehensive way. There were a whole lot of people that were left unemployed dozens of weeks after the uh, pandemic really began. You saw this massive spike in long-term unemployed, which is what you would expect to see uh, months after a uh, an event like that to occur. Uh, restaurants went out of business. A lot of other businesses uh, went out of business. And yet there were uh, new businesses or uh, recent uh, new businesses that suddenly saw uh, massive surges in popularity. I'm thinking of uh, businesses like Instacart or Seamless, food delivery, that sort of grocery delivery, that sort of thing to people's homes saw this massive uh, increase. And for all of that capital that has been left fallow by the fact that people are not uh, engaging the way they were uh, just over a year ago, um, and lots of people presumably ready to work, uh, how soon might we see a uh, you know potentially a massive economic renaissance in a sense that is uh, companies that were left behind, that capital still exists? Well, I think we can be quite bullish about the economic recovery. I think that you know, you're right. This isn't like a this COVID often gets analogized to war, but unlike in war, we haven't had um, vast amounts of kind of capital destruction. Unfortunately, we've had some loss of life, but uh, not uh, much of, uh, among the working age population. Um, but there's no reason, uh, inherent reason, I think, to suspect that the growth potential of the economy has been permanently impaired. We might worry about um, some of the impacts on entrepreneurialism. You know, if you're somebody who's a serial entrepreneur, uh, enjoys opening businesses, you might not have even conceived before this pandemic that there was the potential for state governments to close them for for long periods of time. So, you know, on the margins, I can see why people might be concerned about that. Um, But I expect the economy to bounce back relatively quickly. And indeed, the economy has adjusted incredibly well to this pandemic. Um, I believe I'm right in saying that consumption is now back pretty much to the level it was um, at the start of the pandemic or just before the pandemic started. Now, that in part is due to a vast amount of relief given out by the federal government, uh, by federal taxpayers in the longer term. Um, But in part, it's people finding new ways and engaging in new economic activities given the restrictions that have been imposed. Um, I think there will be some teething problems um, in the near term because we have no idea yet um, whether consumer spending habits will return to uh, quote unquote normal um, or whether they'll kind of be permanently uh, changed demands. We also don't know how um, businesses will operate in the longer term. Will this working from home trend be something that's sticky? Um, If only you know, if even 10% of people that currently live in cities decide to live um, further out and um, work remotely, that will obviously dramatically change many inner city economies. But I think we can expect from what we've seen already, quite a rapid adjustment. And to facilitate that as far as possible, 
I think we need to engage and try and advocate for a light touch regulatory environment. And indeed, I think one of the key lessons in this pandemic is that regulation can really, whatever its other costs and benefits, can really impair our um, adaptiveness as a society. It's one of the reasons why so many regulations have had to be relaxed on businesses and, and telehealth. Um, but we also see it, of course, with the testing and vaccine situation as well, where uh, regulations have preve prevented us using medical innovations that could have ended this much more quickly. So I think there are good reasons to be optimistic. I don't think we'll bounce back to where we would have been had we never had a pandemic. But I don't see any real reason to expect that um, in a meaningful sense, um, this pandemic would have impaired our growth potential. The book is Economics in One Virus. It is by Ryan Bourne of the Cato Institute. Uh, he occupies the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at Cato. And of course, you can follow all of our work on an ongoing basis uh, on this virus and the recovery at our website, cato.org. The stakes are high for restoring supply chains disrupted by the pandemic, but the protectionist policies of the last administration haven't made that easy, and the current administration appears to be in no rush to make changes to free up the movements of critical goods across the globe. Cato's Scott Lincecum comments on the Cato Daily Podcast. When you have a sort of a radical shakeup of supply chains, of uh, the ability of American manufacturers to produce things, a lot of this driven by uh, a, a radical uh, reshaping of the economy in very short form uh, when the pandemic hit, are politicians really that arrogant? And I know where you're going to go with your answer here yeah. as to think that they know which supply chains are going to be uh, disrupted and how nimble and how robust <laughs> yeah. our uh, responses of the great Americans who make things and buy things uh, will be. Right. It is frustrating because, yes, you know, my answer is going to be pretty obvious that they they do think they can control uh, and figure these things out, um, which is, of course, ridiculous. Uh, it's ridiculous first, just given the complexity of these supply chains, um, even for rather rudimentary products like surgical masks. Um, you're still talking about a pretty complex supply chain in terms of you know getting the petrochemicals you need and making these kind of uh, synthetic materials to make the mask and then, of course, assembly and the rest. Um, and then don't even get started into the pharmaceuticals area, which is extremely, extremely complex and subject to all sorts of regulation as well, um, health regulations and the rest. Um, but no, they, they think they can do this. Um, and yet the other real fatal conceit is that they don't seem to understand that the moment the pandemic really took off, American and multinational manufacturers were already working to adjust their supply chains to make things work. And the way I've described it is that our political class and a lot of pundits are stuck in an April 2020 mindset, despite the fact that uh, companies and investors have done pretty radical things in a very short amount of time. Um, and we see this across sectors in the medical goods space in particular. You know, the pandemic was a, a extreme shock to both supply and demand. 
um, all of a sudden, uh, demand, for example, for N95 masks increased tenfold out of nowhere. You know, most N95s used to actually be used for construction. You know, painters and stuff would would use these. Um, and and health sector was actually a pretty small part of the N95. Uh, consumer base. And now, of course, everybody wants N95s. Um, the uh, N95 producers, we actually have substantial production here in the United States, have said that essentially demand is infinite for these products. Um, and those types of radical changes, and then, of course, you know, when you have a, 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 a pandemic, when you have coronavirus hits a country, it stops manufacturing for a little bit, it gums up the shipping channels, all of that type of stuff, right? So all of this happened. And of course, the first thing that logistics experts, very sophisticated folks and very sophisticated companies do, is they start trying to rework their supply chains, not only to get products to American consumers uh, in 2020, but to ensure that these types of things don't happen again. And so, you know, maybe they realized that they were a bit too reliant on China, for example, for certain production. Well, they start shifting out of China. Um, maybe they realize they need to have larger domestic inventories here in the United States. Well, they, they expand storage and inventory capacity in the United States. Maybe uh, other investors jump into the market, realizing there's tons of demand. And we, of course, saw this with respect to hand sanitizer um, and face masks. You know, Etsy, uh, for example, the online retailer, uh, had sales of face masks go absolutely crazy last year, selling millions and millions of face masks as people jumped into that market to make a buck. And all our po politicians are still acting very much like uh, none of this has happened and that, you know, we're still tossing out money under the Defense Production Act um, or demanding more radical changes to trade and investment policy based on a frozen moment in time that that's just not there anymore. And quite frankly, it's a really been a testament to the flexibility of the United States manufacturing sector. You know, these are industries that that never made ventilators, for example, that started making ventilators. Um, and of course, textile mills making making masks and the rest. Um, and but also for our supply chains to adapt our global supply chains. And uh, it's really been miraculous. You know, the United States International Trade Commission uh, just in December did this huge study of of core medical goods and medical goods supply chains. And they said, yeah, you know, there were these shortages in April. Um, there were some pretty rough spots uh, thereafter. But amazingly, the supply chains have adapted pretty well. And outside of rubber gloves, which have pretty significant constraints on natural rubber and uh, the raw material, the artificial uh, rubber, um, outside of rubber gloves, uh, there was really no major concerns going into 2021. And I think we consumers, I think we can see this. You know, you go onto Amazon now, you can get surgical masks, you can get N95s if you want them. Um, sure, there are going to be bottlenecks, particularly for large-scale purchases at hospitals and so forth. But but the supply chains have, have done a pretty good job uh, adapting. Years ago, I had this conversation uh, with various people, Dan Griswold, our former colleague at the Cato Institute, and uh, Don Boudreau. Uh, and it's it would be comical if the stakes were not so high that markets do adapt to uh, adverse circumstances, uh, and yet we know that there are limits to that. 
Uh, so right. what the, the Biden administration may not be wrong as a matter of pure politics to be doing what they're doing, but certainly getting products in the hands of people who can use them to alleviate the costs and um, the damage being right. done continuously by this pandemic, uh, that seems like a pretty clear case uh, before us. It, it is. And, you know, the one of the most frustrating things about being a, a free marketer and, and being knee deep in these supply chains is listening to people point out um, empty shelves in April as proof that the free market has failed, that capitalism has failed. Right. And uh, again, you know, this was a truly insane and hopefully uh, once in a lifetime shock to the entire global economy, almost all at once, um, and causing demand to do absolutely haywire, crazy things. Um, and the fact is that our shelves, the reality, yes, there were shortages, there were problems. But what the the critics don't ever do then is then look at what happened in May and in July and now and how quickly, how amazingly quickly uh, people adapted, um, both producers uh, and retailers and even consumers. We adjusted our consuming our consumption habits to make do with uh, uh, for with replacements for what were considered you know, our standard, say, Clorox wipes or whatever. Um, and all of that is is due to the flexibility and the dynamism of the free market. Um, it would have been impossible for anyone or any group of people to to plan it out better. And in fact, you know, we tried to plan things out. Uh, the example I use in, in my new paper is ventilators again, right? So in March and April, President Trump, uh, the thought, the, the, the Trump administration thought that we were going to need a ton of ventilators. So they used the Defense Production Act to essentially force American companies, um, automakers, GE and others to make ventilators. And there were a lot of stories about how we had a shortage of ventilator parts and this proved our manufacturing capacity was you know, a problem and all this type of stuff. Well, fast forward three months later and the medical professionals realized that we didn't need so many ventilators. And uh, yet the, the De Defense Production Act uh, mandates continue. Now we have an, a, a glut of ventilators. Um, our, our stockpiles are overflowing with ventilators. We are now giving them away to poor countries that don't even want these ventilators. Um, and that is really a classic example, I think, of how that, that momentary stuck-in-time mindset that implements policy that becomes almost not just not just useless, but counterproductive in terms of uh, monopolizing resources that could have been put to better and more productive uses, um, because it just simply can't. It's not nimble enough, um, and and certainly they just can't predict where the supplies and resources we're actually going to need. The development of vaccines, and you and I have discussed this uh, previously, was a a real all hands on deck kind of moment. Uh, where you had global supply chains uh, functioning in order to to do the research, to move the material from one place to another, to ramp up production capacity uh, in all these plants. And uh, for the big companies that are making them, 
they're also hoping to make a pretty solid buck in the process. Right. right. And, you know, I, th- I think it's um, the, the, the vaccines really are, I think, an, just a fantastic real world example of the difference between um, state directed industrial policy and um, the kind of free market, open market, collaborative approach um, that that actually does produce pretty significant benefits. And and I, I say that because, you know, if you look particularly at the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, um, here is a vaccine that, as we've discussed before, was uh, the product of years of global collaboration. BioNTech was a company that, you know, was founded by immigrants, uh, the product of global capital markets. Uh, they they um, and then partnered with a large multinational in Pfizer that uh, funded the entire uh, R&D process itself, $2 billion at its own risk. And the only significant government involvement in the production of the vaccines was an advanced purchase contract. Essentially, the United States government saying, we'll buy whatever you produce, we'll buy you know, 200 million doses um, if it, you can get through FDA approval. Um, now, Pfizer, though, used existing manufacturing capacity, you know, so much for deindustrialization. Pfizer used its own uh, production capacity. It also used imported inputs. It also had foreign production uh, manufacturing capacity as well. Um, and all of this was actually in place pre-pandemic. No one was sitting around um, planning to have a massive vaccine uh production in place. Instead, um, Pfizer serving uh, its markets and serving uh, its customers had this type of capacity in place. It also had the logistics systems in place. And these logistics systems, very complex, you know, to get inputs to Pfizer, to get vaccines out the door. Um, All of this had had evolved over decades, not even, not weeks or months. Um, And none of this, again, was was going to be planned out. Um, And had, we had to actually work from scratch to do these things. Um, It would have been essentially impossible. You know, we we maybe could have had an all-American vaccine, you know, leaving, I mean, I don't think we could have, the immigrants, maybe not, but we we could have had an American-made vaccine, but it would have taken a lot longer. Um, and of course, uh, we would have lost a lot of lives and time in the process. And so it really is, I think, a just fantastic example of how all of these things we take for granted every day, you know, getting our cheap t-shirts to our doorstep uh, via Amazon, um, or the uh, these production networks that are, are organically uh, that arise organically over time uh, based on commercial necessity. Um, all of these things are then put into uh, use for for something greater than that in the, in the vaccines. Um, and it, it would not have been uh, possible without, um, without those types of interactions, uh, regardless of how much government money we threw at it. For California to recover fully from this pandemic and to do so in such a way that new prosperity is broadly shared, the state will have to deal with several underlying problems. Cato's Michael Tanner heads our project on poverty and inequality in California. We spoke last month for the Cato Daily Podcast. 
people uh, who aren't familiar with the statistics on poverty in the United States would be sort of shocked and alarmed to uh, hear how uh, stark the, the 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 poverty situation is in California. Why is poverty in California so different and more pronounced than it is elsewhere? It is pretty amazing that if you take a state like California, which has such pockets of vast wealth, that has an extensive social safety net, that has economic growth, it still has the highest poverty rate in the nation. I mean, it, it is more, there's more people living in poverty in California uh, measured that way than, say, in Mississippi, which is where you'd expect it. Uh, the reason California has so much poverty, I think, is twofold. One is simply a statistical question, the fact that it costs a lot to live in California. The high cost of housing, the high cost of food, uh, the high cost of utilities, all that means that money simply doesn't go as far. Somebody living on the same amount of money in another state would uh, probably not be in poverty. But you can make thirty, forty thousand dollars a year in California and still not be able to afford the basic necessities uh, of going forward. So that that makes a huge difference. In fact, if you look at the two different types of poverty rate, the official Census Bureau numbers puts po puts poverty in California much lower than the alternative measure, which is what everybody uses that takes into account the cost of living. The second unusual thing is that California has basically pursued most of the traditional anti-poverty ideas. Uh, I mean, essentially, it has a very extensive safety net. It provides fairly generous social welfare benefits, and yet it still has high rates of poverty, high rates of homelessness, uh, enormous rates of inequality. It is the fourth most unequal state in the nation, despite the fact that uh, it professes to pursue uh, pro-equality, uh, pro-equity uh, policies. Now, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, if you if you lived in, say, uh, Kentucky or uh, another largely rural state, um, thirty to forty thousand dollars would you you can get an apartment, you can uh, buy groceries, you can uh, you can function uh, in in society in California. If uh, if you're making that amount of money and somehow you lose your apartment, you might be instantly homeless. Well, that's right. I mean, if you simply look at the fact that the average cost of a one bedroom apartment in California is higher than the poverty rate, uh, the poverty level uh, in the United States. So essentially, if you're poor, you've got a real problem trying to get by in California that you may not have someplace else. So uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, of course, California had it has a lot of its own special regulations that ha have made it made that uh, illness and that virus more of a problem for uh, a lot of people after COVID. What can California do to ramp back up and make itself, uh, you know, a, a much more welcoming state to people of moderate means? Well, one of the interesting things about the pandemic was that it exposed the fault lines that existed previously. The problems that existed in a state uh, were more visible and in some cases made worse. And this is absolutely true in California. So if you look at the failures in California, for example, the housing problem uh, and, and the problem with homelessness in the state only became worse once the pandemic hit uh, with all the public health problems that that presented. Uh, the criminal justice system, the fact that so many people were in jail in California, uh, it highlighted that as, as the pandemic raged through jails and prisons. Uh, it, the education system, the fact that uh, California is still at the bottom of the 50 states in terms of getting children back to school. 
that its education system has been basically a failure for uh, years. Uh, and yet, and all these sort of things were highlighted by the pandemic. So any sort of effort to get climb out can't go back to the status quo. What it needs to do is ultimately fix all of these problems along the way. And, uh, you know, housing is such a critical component of uh, having a decent life. Um, it's one of those baseline things that people need in order to to get by. And uh, California has pursued a lot of policies that make uh, housing vastly uh, more expensive. I think it's worth probably reiterating some of the things that have contributed to the extraordinarily high cost of housing in California. Yeah, California should make NIMBY or not in my backyard its official slogan. I mean, because that is essentially the housing policies they pursued. Uh, in most major cities, particularly along the coast, uh, two thirds or more of all the residential land is zoned only for single family housing, uh, which, uh, you know, limits significantly whether or not you can build new apartments, new housing that's available in those areas. It's basically, it's a simple supply and demand problem. If you're going to limit the supply at the same time demand for housing is increasing, you're going to find the cost of housing goes through the roof. This one is uh, kind of economics 101. But essentially, the same people who decry the plight of the homeless and talk about the heartless conservatives, heartless libertarians who don't want to, to help the poor uh, are the first to say, well, don't help them in my neighborhood. Uh, we certainly don't want a homeless shelter built near my apartment. We don't want uh, to allow multifamily housing in my upscale neighborhood. Uh, you find Robert Reich uh, actually uh, demanding that the Berkeley City Council block housing near, uh, near his home. So you find a lot of problems there. If there were uh, the the big fat target for uh, making an adjustment that would give the average person and lower income people in California a leg up in terms of participating meaningfully in in the economy and uh, having a life, uh, you know, free of the the kinds of stresses that uh, low income people uh, more often face, what would it be? Well, I think there's three or four things that we should do immediately. Number one is the fact that coming out of COVID, labor mobility is going to have to be essential. People, especially low-income people who worked in uh, the type of jobs that were most apt to be to be gone as a result of COVID are not necessarily going to get those jobs back. Not all the uh, hospitality industry jobs and tourist industry jobs are going to return, at least not quickly. People need to be able to find new jobs. And yet California has some of the strictest occupational licensing laws in the nation that block people from moving into into new jobs. It's estimated that as many as 200,000 jobs a year in California are lost uh, because of occupational licensing, not to mention billions of dollars in, in misallocated spending that, that goes there. So we should definitely be looking at reviewing occupational licensing laws and getting rid of all of those that aren't strictly necessary for health and safety, which is most of them. Second, we need to deal with the housing issue that we've talked about earlier. You've got to deal with the fact that you've got to open up zoning laws. You've got to deal with the fact that there's such a long regulatory process that it adds tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to the cost of a new apartment as you jump through hoop after hoop of, of trying to get approvals. The California Environmental Quality Act has become little more than a, uh, than a boondoggle for the well-connected. It has very little to do with protecting the environment. It has a lot to do with protecting people's uh, housing investments uh, out there now. And uh, and third, I would say we've got to fix the California education system. The, essentially, the, the public schools have largely failed, and yet the state has very little school choice program. It continues to penalize in its funding formula 
charter schools. Uh, it, it is basically operated for the benefit of the California teachers unions and something really needs to be done about that. I've been telling everyone that throughout this pandemic that pretty much everybody's got to take a haircut. And um, whether that's financially or having to be more tolerant of certain things that you were you could afford to be less tolerant of in the future. So when it comes to government in California, when it comes to regulating in California, what's the haircut? Well, we should recognize that COVID has not been an equal opportunity punisher. Look, we've all suffered. We've all uh, lost uh, people we know to the, to the disease. We've suffered inconveniences ourselves. Uh, we, we've had lockdowns. Our businesses have, have suffered. Uh, there's been all sorts of problems. But frankly, the low, low-income people have suffered the most. Uh, they are most likely to work in the type of jobs that uh, were shut down. Uh, they had the ability to transfer t- to work from home was much less. There's uh, studies out there that shows that about between the quarter and half of people in white collar jobs were able to simply move there to work from home. But if you were a waiter, waitress, whatever, it's negligible. I mean, the, but less than 1% of uh, people in the lowest 10% of incomes were able to move to work from home. Uh, they are have less savings so that if they lost their jobs or were unemployed, they were more likely to get hit, you know, to find it difficult to sort of muddle through until the jobs came back. Uh, and they were more likely to work in type of jobs that exposed them, uh, frankly, to, to catching the, the, the catching COVID. So for all of those reasons, as we begin to rebuild the economy, both in the United States and in California, we really should be making efforts to see that those communities are receive special targeting. We've, we're going to have to make sure that we don't leave them behind. It's not enough to say, okay, let's let the tech industry you know, come back. But if you're in the hospitality industry, you're out of luck. We're going to have to look at, a, at who is impacted by these measures and what we do about them. The top-down approach pervasive in so much policymaking presents problems as requiring large government bureaucracies to solve. What would it mean to believe in people to solve those problems voluntarily? Brian Hooks and Charles Koch are authors of the new book, Believe in People, Bottom-Up Solutions for a Top-Down World. They spoke with Cato President Peter Gettler last month. Charles and Brian have recently written the book, Believe in People, Bottom-Up Solutions for a Top-Down World. In it, they concede our country's facing serious challenges, but they also insist that the top-down approach we're employing to try to solve these problems is failing and will continue to fail. The message I heard when reading the book is a call for dramatic change in approach, wherein we trust people on an individual and community level, and in particular, the people who are closest to these problems and have the most intimate knowledge of them to drive solutions. And in this is a call to action for all of us to recognize a special ability we may have to contribute to addressing these challenges and to not underestimate the impact each of us as individuals can have to solving them. I'm delighted Brian and Charles have joined us to discuss the book in detail. When I was reading the book, it was interesting because I thought that, hey, there's some message in there for folks who aren't familiar or haven't bought into classical liberal principles. So we're kind of, you know, we have a message for people who aren't classical liberals. But when I think about it and I hear you discuss this, I think it sounds like there are some important lessons for those of us who are 
you know, believe in those principles, which is we need to widen the aperture a little bit. We tend to get focused on policy arguments. You know, the government does a lot of harm. We tend to focus on telling people all the bad things the government's doing. And I guess it's pretty bad marketing because we're not, you know, focused on all the great things that, you know, real people are doing out there. We're not telling the optimistic, you know, side of the story. Yeah, as we've really focused on this in in Stand Together and in Coke Industries and partnering with all sorts of people and really applying this Republic of Science to, to building knowledge networks and sharing knowledge and trying to help others. And it, it's, uh, it is truly uh, transformative. And you may want to talk a, a little about what the gains we've made in Stand Together since we really started focusing on this, on, on, on following Frederick Douglass, uniting with anybody to do right and no one to do wrong. Yeah, well, Peter, you're right. You guys had a paradigm shift there, right? And you talk about it in the book about how you took a stronger foray into partisan politics. In the book, you say that that was a mistake, that it created a mess, and now you're trying a different approach. More of a well, you tell us about it, Brian. Yeah, well, no, you got it. I mean, to your to your first question about how does policy balance into really trying to make make sure that we have a society that's characterized by our north star, by this notion of of equal rights and mutual benefit, where everyone can succeed uh, and realize their potential by contributing in society, and you know, in a lot of ways, this is kind of going back to basics. Mm -hmm. The the whole point of a social theory, or, or as you say, classical liberalism, or the, the principles of human progress is to, to discover how people can live well together. It's a holistic vision of a good society. And public policy is a critical component of that. So it's not that you don't focus on policy, you do. And of course, we do a lot of, of, of work to help pass policies that can empower people. But if you only focus on policy, it's like trying to advance a good society with two hands and one leg tied behind your back, right? right, right. You're, you're not you're not taking advantage of all of what really what really is important uh, towards towards that vision. And so we say, alongside policy, you've got to be concerned about a vibrant voluntary sector. You've got to be concerned about how business is contributing and how community organizations are working. And you've got to really be focused on: Are we helping people to discover their gifts through the education system? When you put all of that together, that's when you start to really, really see the opportunity for everybody to get engaged. Mm -hmm. So then that leads into, into your second point. You got to make sure that you're consistent in the application of those principles across each one of those areas. And so when we're looking at how are we, how are we working to improve education? You know, we want to make sure that we're practicing those principles. Are the solutions based on a belief in people? Do they empower people from the bottom up? Are we looking past our differences to find common ground? to grow the coalitions that can really push progress forward and so on throughout each one of these areas. And when it comes to public policy and politics in particular, though that's only one piece of what we do. And in fact, you know, politics uh, has never been more than about 10% of the overall effort, but you still got to make sure that you're, you're consistent in your principles. And that's what we discuss in the book is that for about a six year period, about three election cycles, as we got engaged in, in politics, we got involved in partisanship because that's how everybody does it, uh, rather than partnership. And we learned quickly that while you can accomplish some stuff that way, you're never actually going to be able to, to take on the really big challenges in society and public policy. And so we changed, right? We said, hey, we got to be consistent and practice our principles. 
And as soon as we started leaning into, look, we'll work with anybody to do right. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat. You want to empower people through public policy. We got your back. Man, did we start start accomplishing things. And so that's that's the track that we're on. And, and we talk in the book about what it means to do that in a principled way and and how that can help us to accomplish things that other people look at and say uh, that, that we won't even touch it because it looks too hard. I want to follow up on this a little bit. One of the challenges that I find in you know coalition building and trying to constructively engage with everyone is that folks who you're aligned with sometimes conflate um, being principled with being combative or being outraged. And they think that if you're not outraged, you're not you know, standing by your principles um, strongly enough. And I just think that's a real mistake because, um, you know, Cato, we've, we've, you know, held, you know, we're always open to uh, reassessment, but we haven't reassessed on many policies. You know, we've kept the same uh, principled view on policy issues, stands on policy issues for decades. We haven't changed uh, through political cycles. Um, and I just think there's too much outrage out there. And I want to be friends with everybody because that's the way you constructively engage, you persuade. But right now, our, um, you know, the zeitgeist isn't wired that way. Everyone wants to see you fighting and yelling. And um, do you get pushback from some of your supporters or um, people who, you know, are, again, are equating you know, we're not going to abandon deeply held beliefs yeah. and and uh, matters of principle. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't turn down the volume and really try to be, you know, much more persuasive and engage with a broader audience. But see, I, I think we the, the a major problem today is that is we've got the wrong paradigm in here. It's mm -hmm. it's left versus right. And that your tribe is left or your tribe is right. And then you see as the leaders in these tribes change their opinion on policies and what to do, then the whole gang flows with them. So they're abandoning principles. And the real contest that's going to make a difference is do we have a bottom-up society that empowers people or do we have a top-down society that gets power over people? Mm -hmm. And this is very dangerous because you look at the history of a good part of the 20th century, and it was a struggle between left and right in country after country. And, and, and the more they, the people felt threatened by the left, then they would join the right, and the right would get more extreme and pretty soon would become a tyranny. And those who were more threatened by the right joined the left. And that turned into a tyranny. Mm. And so, so we've got to change that paradigm and get people to realize that, that don't just follow whatever strong man comes up and says they can get rid of this, the, the evils on the other side, because the more they act that way, the way they're going to abandon these principles of human progress and, and, and fall in the same trap mm -hmm. or, the, or not for them, but for their people. When you mentioned strongmen, how concerned are both of you about just the, um, 
you know, the attacks on liberalism that are happening. And this is not, you know, there's been a lot of talk about it in the U.S., but just quite globally. Um, you know, when you look at some of the governments um, and political movements in Europe, um, it's something I find very concerning. Um, it gets to exactly what you were just discussing, because I meet Americans, for example, who um, aren't repelled by someone like Viktor Orban or what's going on in Poland. They they say, well, I like his social policy or I like his uh, tax policy. And so uh, how concerned are the two of you about um, you know, the threat to liberalism, not just in the U.S., but around the world? Well, I mean, I, I, I'll be very, very clear. I think it's the greatest challenge of our time. I think that those of us who have studied history and have worked, you know, as you, as you have, Peter, and, and I mentioned, I imagine many people that are watching right now, those of us that have worked towards a free and open society for our whole lives, I mean, now is the time to, to stand up for these ideas and to make the case based on the evidence that this is the path that is going to help people to realize their potential, to live their best lives, to contribute in a way that helps others to, to improve their lives. Because, you know, right now, I, I don't, I don't, it's certainly never been a more urgent moment than today in, in my life, lifetime. Mm -hmm. And when, when you see so many people in our country feeling like the American dream is no longer a possibility for them. And, and for many people that, that, they feel that way for good reason because these institutions are failing them. That's when people start to turn to failed ideas. You know, call it nationalism, call it socialism. They're all different versions of this top-down approach that basically excludes people from being part of society because they don't feel like they've got much to offer. They they promise them these these impossible promises that sound like quick fixes but ultimately lead to terrible places. And liberalism is a different way. Right. And so making the case that you don't have to settle for this false choice between two failed approaches, but there is a better way. And it's a, it's something that a lot of different people can get on board with because it's the best way to accomplish, you know, what you care about. I mean, I think it's the most important thing that, that anybody can be doing right now. I mean, that's that's my sense. Yeah. And I, I, I put this in in the context of, of one of uh, Hayek's great insights, and which is in, if those interested, is in the second volume of Law, Legislation, and, and Liberty, in which he said, what, what he called perhaps the greatest discovery of mankind, and that is that people can live in peace and to their mutual advantage, it, to paraphrase him here, if they are only limited by abstract rules of conduct. So what does that mean? That means that the, the government rules should, should only be general and not specifically uh, uh, controlling people and limiting what they're doing, but empowering them. And, and therefore the government's role is to set these basic rules, which would, in, in our view, would be based would be uh, uh, equal rights and mutual benefit where people succeed by helping one another. So you get rid of cronyism, corporate welfare, all of those things where, 
where the government rigs the system or, or, or conspires with businesses or other groups to rig the system. So everybody truly has equal rights. And, and then when that happens, when government acts in that way, then that enables all the other key institutions in society, community, education, and business, to focus on empowering people rather than one size fits all top-down approach. You know, Peter, on the wall at the at Stand Together, we have another Hayek quote uh, written, you know, in big letters, and it's the it's the idea that we want we must we must once again make the building of a free and open society an intellectual adventure and a deed of courage. And I think that deed of courage line is more important today than it's been for a long time. And that is ultimately what our book is trying to contribute to, is helping people who feel that same concern to see a path forward for how they can contribute and how they can act on that courage to help to, uh, to, to bring about a, a better society. Are you a teacher or educational administrator? Apply today for Sphere Summit, Teaching Civic Culture Together 2021. The annual Sphere Summit is a full scholarship professional development program for educators of grades 5 through 12. The summit will explore what we can do to restore a spirit of civil, constructive, and respectful discourse in the classroom. Visit cato.org sphere for more information. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.